welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. Looking uh, for leaders, we're going to read um, chapter 3, <clears throat> the entirety of it, and then we're going to trust you to read chapter 4 for homework. Because we believe at the Vineyard that not everything that's eternal, God's word, needs to be everlasting. So we're going to, that was way over your heads. Okay, we don't want to take forever. So for sake of time, we're just going to read chapter 3. Are you with me? Okay. Here is a trustworthy saying. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, he desires a noble task. Now the overseer must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to much wine or to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. Oh, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Deacons, likewise, are to be men worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must be uh, first tested, and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, their wives are to be women worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that, here's the key, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery of godliness is great. He appeared in a body, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up to glory. Amen. So we talked last week about context and how context is really important when we go to sit down with a passage of Scripture. Uh, Without context, it's simply pretext or people looking to start fights or pick arguments with a passage of Scripture. And so we talked about context um, in Paul's view of the early church and his letter to Timothy about how women of this specific uh, church in Ephesus, which Timothy is now in charge of, are to behave. 
And this is the scenario that Timothy has been entrusted with the church at Ephesus, Paul planting the church at Ephesus, and then Timothy is now being charged, and Paul is away, Paul's being put into prison, Paul's uh, going to plant other churches, Paul's going about uh, doing apostolic work, and Timothy is now in charge. And so the letter is a direct message, as Jeff Apley titled the sermon series, to Timothy, a younger leader, on how to, in this, in this chapter, how to look for leaders. How do you discern who is to be leading in the church? In a functional capacity, who is to be overseeing, managing the day-to-day of the church. And so we get this passage of scripture. He says, Paul says, Timothy, I want you to look for leaders and not just any leaders. I want you to look for people that have some distinctive qualities about them, some peculiar proclivities about them, some leaders who will carry the truth, some leaders who are distinct. And what Paul does then in the passage we just read is lay out 10 qualities of what a Christian leader should look like. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to pull up each individual quality that Paul writes to Timothy and tells them they should have. But, uh, but really what we'll do is kind of couch these 10 qualities into three different categories and work from there. Now, what I thought was important to notice is right off the bat that Paul uses the word anyone. Anyone, or you might have whoever, sets their heart on being a leader, excuse me, or desires being a leader, desires a noble task. And I want you to key in on that word anyone, referring back to last week. You know, several translations the RSV, the NAB, the NIV, from which I'm teaching out of this morning, will insert or impose the male personal pronoun onto the text. And some people believe, some commentators believe, that Paul is doing this because of the cultural context of the day. Ephesus, a very patriarchal society, and so Paul had it in his mind that men would be leaders in the church. At the vineyard, we believe that when Paul says anyone, Paul really does mean anyone. Anyone. I should have gotten some good amens there. Anyone. We believe at the vineyard that anyone Anyone, come on. So anyone means anyone. That the gifts of God and the calling of God are not determined by your gender any more than they are determined by your race or your age. That the gifts of God are sovereignly given by God and the people who carry those gifts in the church are able to accomplish and be and do all of the things that God has called them to do and to be. Yes. So anyone means anyone. 
First of, the first category that we want to look at is that Paul is referring to is a consuming call. A consuming call in your notes. A consuming <laughs> call. And 1 Timothy 3, 1b, we read, Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires to be desires a noble task. The word uh, desire in the Greek is the same word that Jesus uses when he's meeting with his disciples, moving into the Last Supper. Jesus says that he eagerly desires to share this meal with his friends. It's the same word that's used when Paul talks about the spiritual gifts in the great spiritual gifts passages of the New Testament that we are to eagerly desire the gifts of God. And Paul is saying to Timmy, Timothy, Timmy, <laughs> today is a funny day. So funny, but funny day. Paul is saying to Timothy, that whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. So Paul tells us that the quality of a leader in the church is that they have a desire to serve others. They, they have a call inside. They, and Paul says, Timothy, you should examine people in the church to see if this desire comes from themselves or if this desire comes from God. Paul is writing about this word desire in the, of do you have a fire in your belly where you can't help do and be the thing, the person that God has called you to be. The thing that God has called you to do. When you can't help, when you can't take it any longer. Some of you know part of my story. I was in Augusta, Georgia for the better part of five and a half years, and I served as an associate a worship pastor for the vineyard in Augusta. I rarely got to teach or pray, preach. Um, mainly, I just led people in worship for the better part of five and a half years and built worship community there. Now, before then, when I had first come to follow Jesus, I had this really vivid dream. And it was of myself in Columbus in this, um, near this coffee shop called Caribou Coffee in Columbus. It's no longer there. And it was in this town called Worthington. There's a fountain outside of Worthington. And I was standing on the fountain and I was calling people to follow Jesus and calling people... Um, to repentance and calling people to love, to love Jesus. And that dream must have been, you know, what, 15, 15 12, 15 years ago, maybe exaggerating here, but um, a while ago, but it stuck with me. Why would you give me this dream, God? I don't really feel like I should be preaching. But as the years went on, this dream was just so solidified in my heart and in my mind. In Augusta, I was quiet. I was silent. You can't believe that. Marianne got the joke. 
For the better part of five years, I rarely talked to anybody, even throughout the course of my workday. I sat in my office, I wrote emails, I didn't talk to anybody, I was quiet, the Lord was hiding me, I was hidden. I talked to Sarah, I talked to the kids. But for the better part of, Sarah can attest to this, for the better part of five years, I was silent. Well, about three quarters through the way of our time in Augusta, I started having a case of the can't help it. You guys know the case of the can't help it? When God starts to move in a person's life, with whatever gift that it is, whether it's teaching, whether it's music, whatever it is, whether it's serving the poor, whether it's uh, giving homes to refugees, whatever it is, rescuing people from human trafficking, when God gives you a case of the can't help it, Sarah and I just began to, every day after work, I'd come home and I'd say, Sarah, I feel like it's time. I feel like it's time. I don't know what it is, but it's time. And you have a fire in your belly that the Holy Spirit is moving in you. You begin to, you begin to move and operate out of that place. You have a case of the can't help it. And Paul is telling Timothy, look for leaders who have the desire, the God-given desire, to be and to do all that God is calling them to step into. A consuming call, that word desire. Paul also writes that these folks need to be devoted. They need to have devotion. He says that whoever sets their heart on leadership desires a noble task. A noble task, the Greek word for task here is ergo, and it implies effort or zeal. And every time it's used in the New Testament, it's used to insinuate a lifelong commitment to a never-ending task. Thanks a lot, Jesus. <laughs> Right? Because who just loves signing up for jobs that will never be finished? I just talked to a guy this morning, super proud of his, super proud of his work, you know, and he gets to design things, and he's an, he's an engineer, he gets to design things, and then, you know, the joy in that is like seeing the cylinder, seeing the thing that was in your head, and then working it out, and seeing the finished product. Paul says, not so with leadership, don't bake on it. It's a lifelong commitment to a never-ending task, meaning that a leader's job, he's saying, Timothy, this is a high call, and I know it's, uh, it's a high call, and thus it's going to take devotion. It's going to take devotion because a leader's job is never finished. There's always work to be done. And it's tough for us when we read this passage and we see that we, if anyone desires to be an overseer, they desire a noble task, a high task. It's tough for us to see that in the church. The scandals and um, a lot of times in the church it feels like a low calling. Who would want to serve in that place? Ugh. 
But what Paul is saying in Scripture is that this is a high calling. If you have any inclination to serve God, that when we come to serve God, we come to serve others. We're, we're doing a noble thing. It's a high calling. And that is going to take devotion. You're going to need to show devotion. Timothy, look for leaders who have devotion, who are devoted to Jesus. Because leadership, I think, I think, if I could impose myself on the text a little, I think Paul is saying is because ministry is a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's funny. God bless him. Not judging. No, no criticism. It's funny when I see people who are under the age of 50 posting themselves preaching on social media. I say, hold on a little bit, buddy. The story ain't unfolded yet. What with all the crashing burns in ministry? Let's hold off a little bit before we post viral videos of ourselves preaching in front of hundreds of thousands of people and we're still under the age of 50. Our story isn't written yet. Our theology is still being formed. Let's press the pause button. Paul is saying, let's look for leaders, Timothy, who are devoted to a lifelong commitment involving a never-ending task. Look for people who are devoted, who, are not, who have roots, he says, who are not new converts, who have roots that go down. These are the type of people God wants leading his church. Devoted people. Devoted people. We need people. The church needs people who are devoted to sharing glimpses of the kingdom because the work is never done. You know, there's a man in the hospital right now with a life-threatening surgery on the docket. There's a woman who's caught in the throes of heroin addiction and needs to know that Jesus is deliverer. There's people in, in Washington sitting on both sides of the aisle who need to know that God is still on the throne. There are people who live in North Korea who need to know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And that he's able to negotiate peace. There are orphans who need to know that God is a loving father. That God hasn't abandoned him. So we need leaders, Paul is saying, who are devoted. Who will say, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. Let your rule, God, let your reign, God, come to Cleveland, come to our communities. And by saying this, a devoted leader is really just opening up his or her hands and saying, here I am, send me. When we say, Lord, let your kingdom come, let your will be done, our posture is this. Here I am, send me, because heaven's response to those prayers, Lord, would you end the heroin epidemic in Cleveland? Lord, would you let refugees feel the welcome of heaven in Cleveland? The answer from heaven to our prayers is, you do it. You do it. 
God says, that's why I put you in Cleveland. You're here for a purpose. You're here to be devoted, to live a devoted life to Jesus, beholding his presence, bringing heavenly solutions to earthly problems. Devoted. Timothy, I need leaders who will say, Lord, let your kingdom come and your will be done. Yeah, a lifelong commitment to a never-ending task. The next category that Paul goes into in these qualities of what a leader should look like is those who demonstrate a consistent character. A consistent character. He writes in 1 Timothy 3, 2, he says, Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. That phrase, above reproach, is the key one. And what is meant by above reproach means that that person, Timothy, this person that you're looking for, there to have a character that cannot be taken hold of. Timothy, I want you to look for people who are in the back pocket of Jesus and no one else. Leaders who cannot be bought. Leaders who are the same in front of people whether the camera is on or not. Above reproach. It doesn't mean that that person is perfect. It just means that they're kind of like Teflon, not Velcro, as one commentator puts it. That any false accusation, any accusation in general that is brought against them would not be able to stick. Because that leader is above reproach. And only in the back pocket of Jesus. And that character extends to their family. Uh oh. It's going to get all up in our business now. Well, God got up into my business this week too. So I suppose turnabout is fair play. (laughs) So here we go. He says that character should extend to their family. He should be in the text. He, the personal pronoun, again, inserted. He should be faithful to his wife. Now, in the Ephesian culture, polygamy is rampant. And so what Paul is doing is he's raising a standard. But he's really not talking about marriage. You understand that, right? I mean, he is. But he isn't. Because you know Paul himself is not married. And neither is Timothy. And Paul is saying, hey, dudes, you're to be, the text puts it this, here's what it means, faithful to his wife. It means you are to be a one-woman man. And wives, you're to be a one-man woman. The key is faithfulness. The key is faithfulness. That you are to be faithful to your spouse. You're to be faithful to her and love her. And this extends to our children as well. Oh boy. We're to love our children. How many, when we're talking about consistent character, how many of you know that your children are observant? 
How many of you know that your, ch- your children, oh yes, even mine, <laughs> how many of you know that your children will tell on you? Your children will tell your business. Oh yeah, these people live off of the same street as us. Daddy, no they don't. You're exaggerating. They live, they live four blocks away off of our street. Yeah, that happened to me a couple weeks ago. Your children will reveal what you believe about God. Your children will reveal what you believe about others. And so Paul is saying, I believe in a spirit of fatherhood. Hey, manage your household well. You know, hearkening back to like train a child up in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. That kind of deal. Because your character is not just when you're in front of people, your friends. It extends to at home when no one's watching, but they're watching. They're watching. Then he goes on to talk about sobriety of spirit. Now, whenever we talk about the word sober, we talk about it in the context of being drunk. The opposite of being drunk. Paul is saying that leaders, you're to be balanced, sober, and disciplined. Sobriety of spirit. You're not to be given, given to drunkenness. Now, I realize that I'm speaking mainly to Christians this morning, so no one here would know how it feels to be drunk. You, now, you might have had somebody tell you what that's like, but no one here... <laughs> So let me tell you how that feels since you don't know because you're all great Christians. (laughs) When you are drunk, you lose control. You lose self-control. You become imbalanced, right? And Paul is saying, like, not so with Christian leaders. You're to have sobriety of spirit. That when people come into contact with you, there should be this focus about you. should be this presence about you. Sobriety of spirit. And what he's really saying is because that sobriety of spirit is an outward expression of what's already happening inside. So, Timothy, this is why it's important to check, to check people who desire leadership. Uh, make sure that they have a sobriety of spirit. That they're balanced, sober, and disciplined. Make sure they have roots. That's why it's important that Paul is saying, make sure they've got some roots, that they're not a new convert, you know? The third and last category I want to get at is a biblical conviction and a capacity to teach others. A biblical conviction and capacity to teach others. Every other quality is a character thing, isn't it? And then he says, leaders should be able to teach. They should be able to teach. And that's peculiar because everything else is about the 
the leader's character. But this one is based out of capability. And it's not so much about having perfect theology or being the best teacher or the greatest preacher. But what the word means in the text, it insinuates readiness. Can we hear that this morning? That it's not so much about like being great at being, te- at being a teacher or being amazing, an amazing preacher who just knows all the correct theology, all the correct theology for all of the different people's personalities. Impossible. But it's about readiness. He's, Paul's saying, look for people who are able to te- who are ready to teach in and out of season because you're already doing it. Are you aware of that this morning? You're already teaching somebody in your life. Whether it's a coworker, your spouse, your kids, your extended family, you're already teaching. In fact, Paul says in Colossians, in Colossians 3, he says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. There's no leader quality that's attached to that. Saying, he's not saying leaders teach and admonish. He's saying everybody, all of you church, teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Do you know you can teach people through songs? Weren't we taught this morning through songs? We were taught, I don't know about you, we were taught this morning through song about the peace of God and what the peace of God looks like when it comes to a room of people. We teach through songs. We teach through psalms. We teach through hymns. Songs from the Spirit. And everyone does that. Whether you like to or not, you're a teacher You're teaching somebody, someone in your life. You're teaching somebody right now. So you don't have to be a a quote high level of leadership to teach someone else or to encourage someone else. Paul says character is most important, but capability or readiness to teach. The thing that you receive, the thing that you carry, to share that. That's all he's saying. Readiness, ability to share that thing that you carry. Because that thing that you carry, like Revelation says, could be the key for another person overcoming. Because how do people overcome? How do we overcome? By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And so you give that, the thing that you carry, the hope that you carry in a tough time. That's why Paul is saying like, um, you know, Make sure these leaders have roots because who who knows here to be very skeptical of shiny leaders. Give me a leader who has been through the fire, man. Who knows a few things about what it's like to walk through drug addiction. Who knows a few things about a limp. Who knows a few things about what it's like to journey with God in a season of pain. Who knows what it's like to lose a child before their time. Give me a leader like that any day of the week. If it's shiny, I'm like, hmm, I don't know if that person's been through anything 
I mean, I don't know their story. Who am I to judge? But if it's shiny on the outside, man, it's most likely trying to be shiny on the inside too. But you know, we just look at the outward appearance and God looks at the heart. And Paul is saying character is the most important, but you are able to, a leader is able to share the thing that they carry in and out of season. Readiness to teach. And you may say this morning, you know, I've got seasons in my life where I've been anything but above reproach. I've been anything but that. Like this standard that we're reading about this morning, this standard for me just feels like this high. And this is where I want us to key in and close this morning. Dang it, I'm running out of time. This is the best part. Matt says, a freedom. Okay, uh, thank you. A freedom. Um, a lot of times we hear this in the courtroom. I, I use this analogy sometimes. A lot of times we hear this stuff and we hear a list of do's and don'ts. And truthfully, it is, right? I mean, if we're just honest with one another. But could we take it out of the courtroom for a minute, just for a second, and see God's heart for people in this passage? When we say, I don't know about all of this, and we begin to disqualify ourselves because we feel like the standard is so high, I'll never be able to attain that. Paul is reminding us here in chapter 3 as he's writing in the present tense. That's important. He's writing in the present tense. Well, how long is the present is the next question to ask. I would propose, so you say, I got some stuff in my past, man. You don't know. I got some stuff that automatically disqualifies me from any role in leadership in the church. Didn't I hear once that we've all fallen short of the glory of God? We've all fallen short. But what Paul is saying as he's writing in the present tense is that I may have had some bad chapters or seasons in my life. Back here in chapter one. But now we're in chapter three. And God has brought me through some stuff. So the tense, I would propose, is long enough to prove faithfulness to that thing that God has changed your life or is changing your life into being. Because he's had long enough. How many of you know the longer you walk with the Holy Spirit, the more mature you should become? The more mature you should become. It has nothing to do with age. But the longer you host the Holy Spirit, the, the longer you behold the presence of God, you should become more mature. You should look more like Jesus. Ran into a guy at the marriage retreat. You see Jesus shining in his eyes. Like, man, you haven't even said like two words to me. I just feel the embrace of God, the presence of God. The longer you walk with Jesus, the more mature you should become. And so I'm here to tell you that if you've gone through some stuff, God has brought you out the other side. You don't have to worry about that stuff back there. 
Because now you're in chapter three, not chapter one, where Paul says, I'm the, what does he say about it? I'm the chief of sinners. And now he's writing in the present tense in chapter three saying, this is what it looks like to be a leader in the church. Finally, here's where it hinges. In verse 15, this is the heartbeat of the pastoral epistles. If you picture it something like a ring, verse 15, if you picture it like a ring and all of the other pastoral epistles are like chain link that are holding on to this one verse. Do we have it up there, Evan? Or did I not put it up there? No? This is it. The anticipation is killing me. Okay. (laughs) Paul says, if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God and the pillar and foundation of the truth. This is where... All of these qualities of a leader get, uh, are informed out of. This is the heartbeat of the pastoral epistles. This is the direct message. Because when you give your yes to Jesus... Paul says are part of God's household. This is the way we're to behave. This is the way we are to act in the church. That when you say yes to Jesus, when you begin to follow Jesus, when you continue to say yes to Jesus, how many know that God becomes your father? And Jesus becomes your older brother. And that we become connected by the blood of Jesus through the Holy Spirit as brothers and sisters in Christ. In other words, we're family, you guys. And Paul's saying, all this stuff, this is how you treat family. This is how you do family. This is how the story of family gets rewritten in the recreation of all things. You don't gossip about your brother. You don't cheat on your wife because we're family. This is the heartbeat of it. He also says that we're the, we are the church of the living God. How many of you know that we do not serve a dead God? And some commentators would agree that Paul is referencing Diana the God of Ephesians here. That the scene is in his mind. When he writes the church of the living God, he has this scene, which would have been a common scene in Ephesus, of people going to the temple of Diana and lifting praises to Diana. Great and worthy is the goddess Diana of the Ephesians. But you know Diana's dead. Diana is dead. Hashtag Diana's dead. (laughs) And you, so he's saying, how much more? How much?
much more that we serve a, a God who's alive. That Jesus didn't just stay dead when he was crucified on the Roman cross and buried underneath the ground, stone cold, dead. That Jesus, that the Father raised Jesus up and sat him at the highest place. At the right hand of the Father. And there he sits, alive. Not just at the throne of God, the Father, but in our hearts. That it's not just an organization or some institute, the church. That we are a living and breathing organism. Filled with the presence of God to complete the story. That's why he says that we are, as the church, pillar and foundation of the truth. Because how many of you know that when things aren't right in the church, things cannot be right in the world? Because the church is the hope of the world. The local church, you and I, are the hope of the world. There is no plan B. There just isn't. It's your itty-bitty heart. And my little hands and our feet left, right, left, right, one step at a time, ushering in the new story that God started by Jesus' death and resurrection. Amen. Amen.